Hello and welcome to the 25th QuackCast, the skeptical and sarcastic evaluations of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. I'm sorry. Supplements, complementary, and alternative medicines, otherwise known as scams. It's March 2008 and I'm going to cover mold-related illnesses. Brought to you as a side project of Puswell LLC, the publisher of the Persiflasure's annotated compendium of infectious disease facts, opinion, and dogma. Your Uber hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious diseases, where you will find the PUSCast, the bi-weekly review of CME-accredited infectious disease podcast. I'm sorry, I guess it's been a while since I last did a podcast, and I'd like to thank all of you who inquired as to the results of my autopsy. This podcast turned out to be a bigger bite than usual and required far more reading and research as, unlike most scams, there's a lot of research behind this topic, although a lot of it is peripheral and or just downright crappy. There will be more summary than is usual due to the extent of the literature I reviewed. For those who want more detailed information, check the references in the show notes. I hope this podcast has enough giraffe in it for those who need that. But for those of you who have complained about the long entry, this is the short version. Now on to the meat of the matter. This podcast is a bookend for the last one. First, Canada, now molds. Well, what diseases do molds cause? Well, I'm not going to talk about invasive molds. Aspergillus or mucor or some equally obscure mold eating a patient with no immune system. That's part of my day job. And I'm not going to talk about allergic reactions to molds, which is reasonably well worked out and is the purview of the allergist. Anybody need a skin patch? So I want to be clear up front. What I'm going to talk about is the alleged toxic effects of environmental molds that grow on your walls and floors and spew toxins into the air and make you ill. Not invasive disease, not allergic disease. Toxins. Ooh, the evil toxins. First, the microbiology. Molds are common. The black stuff on your cheese, the green stuff on your bread, the fuzz on your coffee grounds when you come back from a long vacation, it's all one mold or another. Single men have a good understanding of mold. They grow it with inadvertent abandon. Most women I know have never seen mold grow on old coffee. But I digress. That should be the name of my podcast, I think. But I digress. Anyway, molds are ubiquitous in the environment. But the only thing they need is a little water, and they will grow and eat whatever they are on, even a rock. In the end, we will all be consumed by molds, and they are the key in the final breakdown of organic materials so that you and I can be recycled into the next generation of worms and bugs. Now, depending on the time of year and humidity, fungal spores in the air can range from hundreds to tens of thousands per milliliter of air. You breathe about six liters of air every minute, so every minute on a humid spring day, you may breathe in and out 10 million or more fungal spores. Fortunately, our immune system keeps it at bay, but they are around us all the time. The point is, we are bathed in mold and mold spores all the time. Avoiding mold is like trying to avoid stupidity. It is a major part of the world. The most common molds in the environment are Aspergillus and the Mucorale species, but in the world of fungi shui, stachyboitris gets much of the press. And the reason for that brouhaha is the production of mycotoxins. Again, toxins. Now, many microorganisms make toxins of one sort or another. Staphylococcus and streptococcus, for example, make toxic shock toxins that lead to, hmm, toxic shock syndrome. Poison ivy makes a toxin, as Batman well knows. 
My son may make noxious gases, but I'm not so certain that they qualify as a toxin. For the sake of this podcast, I like the definition which I got from the net for a toxin. Quote, The term toxin is frequently used to refer specifically to a particular protein produced by some higher plants, animals, and pathogenic bacteria. A toxin typically has a high molecular weight, is antigenic, i.e. elicits an antibody response, and is highly poisonous to living creatures. They're big, stinking proteins. And there are also endotoxins, which are released when the organisms break down. And there are exotoxins, which the organisms deliberately release into the environment. These exotoxins are most curious. They are often rapidly fatal to the host. Toxic shock syndrome, botulism, tetanus kill people fast, really fast, like a day or two or even less. As best I can tell, they do not help increase the spread of the organism. I assume, perhaps incorrectly, that the ill effects of these toxins, i.e. proteins, that are, occur in humans is a byproduct of their real function, whatever that might be. I've never been able to discover the real function of botulism toxin, for example, or any other toxin. If their primary function is to help in reproduction by killing people, I can say it isn't working real well for them in this day and age. The ill effects of many toxins are made by microorganisms are probably an epiphenomenon of their real purpose, whatever that real purpose might be. Perhaps there is someone listening in the audience who is smarter than me, no, I doubt that, who can answer the question, what is the real function of these toxins? I presume these toxins have evolved for some function other than to kill people. To be an infectious disease doctor is to be an implied evolutionist. There may be neurosurgeons who can't understand evolution, but I would be surprised if there's an ID, that would be infectious disease, not intelligent design, doc out there who does not recognize the beauty and understanding that evolution brings to the subspecialty. And let me say here, at the risk of pissing off some of my referral base with a little ad hominem, but neurosurgeons are frequently not the sharpest knives in the medical drawer, despite brain surgery often being a surrogate for intelligent and difficult. But neurosurgeons should be evolutionists as they are the only doctors that have the power to evolve species. They are the only ones that can turn a human into a vegetable. Thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week. Now, toxins can be characterized as endotoxins and exotoxins. They can also be characterized as characterized or not characterized. And as Groucho said, you can quote me as being misquoted. There are the characterized toxins made by the fungi. More about these in a moment. Then there are the uncharacterized toxins. Toxins are evidently saturating the food we eat, the air we breathe, and the water we drink, and they cause untold numbers of illnesses. These toxins fill our bodies, saturating our liver and our colon and our immune system, causing untold suffering and illness. And to get rid of these toxins, you need to be detoxified. These toxins, which are unnamed, should I call them Voldemort? Nah, probably not. I'd be violating one trademark or another. Can only be removed with purging or chelation or enemas or fasting or some proper diet. There are many ways to detoxify oneself. There are even pads that you can place on your feet to draw the toxins out. Yeah, right. But to quote from the Takara Detox Foot Pad, which is one among many, quote, A toxic body with an overburdened liver and a sluggish and congested lymphatic system simply cannot maintain the normal cleansing performance required to advance optimal health. Also, in addition to an overabundance of naturally occurring toxins, it is estimated that well over 400 synthetic chemicals and other man-made toxins permeate the body of the average individual today. End quote. 
Toxins, toxins, toxins. Now, no references. None of these toxins are identified, but there are lots of toxins. Now, in the Middle Ages, diseases were caused by miasmas, an ill wind that caused disease, or often demons that possessed the person to cause disease. One of the many alt-med equivalents of demons and miasma is toxins. This is an evil humor that permeates all of modern culture, made by industry, and we all consume them. These toxins all need to be removed. Bummer. I just wish once that these toxins would be named. Now, this is not to say that there are no toxins in the environment. I'm not building a house on Love Canal anytime soon. But if you are going to remove a toxin with a colonic irrigation, at least do me the favor of naming it and buying me dinner as well. If I'm going to spend money on being detoxified, tell me what toxin you are going to be removing. They can't do it. Wouldn't be prudent. As to named toxins, well, there are a lot of them. Lots and lots of toxins. Bacteria and molds make a wide variety of toxins. For molds, there are at least 21 different mycotoxin classes. There are 400 individual toxins, at least, made by over 350 different fungi. In the real world, some toxins are virulence factors, while others kill other fungi and microorganisms which, with which they are in competition for food. Disease in humans and animals, I am not an animal, is a side benefit for the organism and may represent a spillover effect when causing disease in animals. Take stachyboitres, the dread black mold robert. It makes toxins. Toxins that are so unpronounceable, such a mouthful of random consonants and vowels, I understand why detoxifiers never mention them by name. Things like macrocytic trichothecins, which can be a neurotoxin, and antranones, which are toxic to lung tissues, and proteases, which dissolve protein, and hemolysins, which slice red cells. Now, there's nothing novel about some of these toxins. Think about it. The average mold can't go to the local grocery store to eat. It has to eat whatever it's sitting on, so it makes the enzymes necessary to dissolve its environment so it can eat it, as do all microorganisms that want to eat. Now, the world is filled with other microorganisms that want the same meal. So not only does the organism have to eat, it has to fend off the multitudinous other organisms that want to chow down on the same meal at hand. That meal, by the way, will one day be you. So these organisms have evolved both dietary and defense systems that are as effective on fallen tree trunks or bread in your lauder or your corpse that toxins. Most of the time, these organisms just make enough toxin for the local environment. Microorganisms usually make just enough toxins to take care of the business locally. They do not, like Dow Chemical, pump toxins willy-nilly into the environment. Occasionally, in the world of infectious diseases, there is an organism that pumps out inactivating enzymes. These are called constitutively derepressed, like this podcast. These constitutively derepressed organisms do not survive long outside the hospital environment. If these organisms are in an antibiotic-free environment, the metabolic cost of being derepressed is true high, and the organism, like MacArthur, fades away. The point of this is that these mycotoxins, while present, are there in teeny tiny amounts, usually just enough to be effective in the local environment. If your diet is wood, you can't afford to divert your resources to dumping large amounts of protein into the air. You need to keep it isolated to the working environment.
Now, in a world that thinks homeopathy is reasonable, this is not necessarily a drawback for proponents of the adverse effects of mycotoxins. Perhaps the air, like water, has memory of being exposed to the mycotoxin, and that is how disease is caused. I really shouldn't be giving these people any ideas. And, as an aside, you also have to stir them up. If the mold is eating the wood in your walls, the toxins are not going to teleport through your drywall to fill your air with toxins. The molds sit in a wet goop inside your wall. It's like Vegas. What happens in the wall stays in the wall. The one place where you might get enough toxin aerosolized is in the shower of the average college male, which is only cleaned at moving time in a feeble and ultimately failed attempt to get the cleaning deposit back. But you know, that's true. So at the biologic level, what's the data that toxins from molds in the house can affect humans? So most of this will focus on Stachyboetrys chertatum, which is the black mold and which is most often blamed for toxin-induced disease. And many molds can be found in wet buildings. Up to 42 different molds and yeasts have been isolated in wet buildings, with stachyboetries being one of the more uncommon molds, being found in about 13% of buildings and about 4% of air samples, and rarely found alone. And the number may underrepresent the incidence of mold that is not so easy to grow. Now, stachyboetries does make toxins, including... I'm going to pronounce all these wrong. Oridin E, Satrotoxin H, Sporidensum G, Trichoverins, and Verucarol. Yes, I know, I pronounced them wrong. Look them up on the webpage if you want to know the spelling so you can actually get a phonetic pronunciation of old mumble mouth here. However, these toxins are toxic, and they've been looked at to be used as biowarfare agents, especially the macrocytic trico thesines, which are potent inhibitors of protein synthesis. But stachyboetries is not the only fungus that makes these toxins. However, just because a mold can make a toxin doesn't mean it will make a toxin. Only about two-thirds will make a toxin, and toxin production is dependent on local conditions and variable by strain, and this toxin is not necessarily aerosolized. Organisms usually make toxins for a reason, and if the environment is not right, it won't make them. And here's an interesting feature. The toxins tend to be aerosolized when the room is dry. When the room is wet and humid, the mold and the spore stay in a slimy mass on the walls. Even then, the molecular weight and the makeup of mycotoxins make them unable to be aerosolized. The only way they can get into the air is on dust or other particles, and there are a few particles that can make it into the lower airway. Too big, they fall in the air. Too small, and they can't deposit. It is hard to get particles in the lung, and they have to be, to quote Goldilocks, just right. Only a spore less than one micrometer can make it into the lower airway, and the spores of stachyboetries are five times that size. So not only are the toxins unable to be aerosolized, neither are the spores. The point is that the wet, humid environments are those that are least likely to get mycotoxins and fungal spores into the air, and once in the air, their structure makes them unlikely to get into you. Now, can these toxins kill? You bet you they can. They can kill animals. There have been a few outbreaks of deaths in sheep and horses when they have consumed large amounts of wet straw or other moldy fodder. Not a pleasant death that these animals had. It was characterized by hemorrhagic septicemia, i.e. they lost all their blood components and died. 
and mold toxicosis may have been due to contaminated wheat that may have occurred during World War II in this old Soviet Union. But these outbreaks are few in number and poorly characterized as to which toxin killed off the animals. Now there is a huge difference between consuming a large amount of toxin and breathing in a small amount of fungal spores and mycotoxins. We have this unfortunate dose-effect paradigm in medicine, where less drug you give, the less the effect. There are some controlled animal studies, probably not PETA-approved, and they have demonstrated a variety of toxic effect. Whether these studies are applicable to alleged human disease from inhaling a small amount of mycotoxin, I am not so certain. Many of these animals had a huge installation of fungal spores into their lungs or nose, which has little correlation with the proposed inhalation of environmental spores or toxin. If you dump a ton of anything into an animal's lung, be it fungus or bacteria or Nutella, you are going to get a reaction. So the applicability of these animal models to human disease is suspect. Animal experiments have resulted in pulmonary, gastrointestinal, and topical toxicities with some systemic toxicity, but usually no specific neurologic signs. The same problem occurs in the purported effects on the immune system, where the immune system is exposed to a huge amount of toxin, which is far more than is measured in the environment of, quote, sick, unquote, houses. Now, when instilled in the nose of a mouse, it did destroy nasal neurons, and the mouse did get a mild encephalitis, i.e. brain inflammation, and the nasal neurons go straight to the brain and is a route used by some pathogens to get to the brain, such as amoebic encephalitis. So I would say that if you were to fill two large syringes up with stachybotrys mold, inject them both into your nostrils and hold them there for a while, it might make its way to your brain. So while animal models do suggest toxicity of stachyboitrees, spores, and mycotoxins in animals, the models used are not a good representation of what occurs in the alleged human disease. What about human trials? Well, there are a few trials to see if these toxins have an adverse effect on humans. Not a big surprise. It's not a study that anyone is going to participate in anytime soon. Hey! Want to inhale or ingest some mold toxins? I don't think so. However, there was a study in Sweden where they took eight people who had been exposed to a water-soaked school and let them inhale for six minutes at a time either penicillium spores, trichoderma spores, both of these were from the school in question, or placebo. It was a double-plying study. No one knew whether they were inhaling spores or nothing. And guess what? There was no difference in symptoms in them what got placebo versus them what got spores. No one got ill. And that's the only double-blind, randomized, controlled human studies to look at the effects of fungal spores on human beings, and they did not use the dread black mold trees. And I think that's probably as close to a human study as we're ever going to get. I think it's unlikely that Koch's postulates are going to be fulfilled. Koch's postulates apply to infections and are as follows, and I have substituted the term mycotoxin for microorganisms, and it's a way to think about how to prove whether or not something causes disease. One, the mycotoxin must be found in all organisms suffering from the disease, but not in healthy organisms. Two, the mycotoxin must be isolated from diseased organisms and grown in pure culture.
free, the mycotoxin should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. And four, the mycotoxin must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. Now, Koch's postulates are not quite applicable to toxins, but a valuable conceptual guide when thinking about the causes of diseases, especially potential infectious diseases or toxic diseases. So, there are no clinical trials that fulfill Koch's postulates. Well, you might be saying to yourself, there must be something behind this disease. People aren't just talking out their butt, are they? Well, there are epidemiologic trials. And most of the data for this mold-related disease is epidemiologic and, as is so often the case, may show an association with the presence of mold in some symptom complex or other. Now repeat after me. Om. Association is not causation. Om. Most of these studies, as you will see, suffer from a form of the sharpshooter's fallacy. That's where you shoot at the wall, then you go up and you paint a target centered on the bullet holes. In these studies, as we shall see, they start with people identified as having mold toxicity. Then the investigators do a variety of tests and questionnaires to determine what manifestations are due to the mycotoxin disease. They do this kind of bass-ackward. And, as a further aside, I recommend for your interest a book called Histories, spelled H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-E-S, by Elaine Showalter. This is an excellent and interesting book that looks at, quote, illnesses, unquote, that all have the hallmarks of people working themselves into believing they have an illness they don't have, i.e. they're hysterical. Hence the word histories. Excellent book. You may not think that's possible, but normal people, if they think they're being exposed to some sort of environmental poison, will get sick. My favorite example of this is the mad gasser of Mattoon. See the Wikipedia for details. But there are many of these outbreaks that are probably a form of mass hysteria. The main thing that separates imaginary illnesses is that the symptoms tend to ignore well-delineated physiological pathways, which, of course, is no problem for believers in alternative medicine since they ignore well-delineated physiologic and anatomical pathways. Now, these patients have real symptoms nonetheless. Look at hysterical blindness as an example. Well, you can look at it, but they can't. And these symptoms are always subjective with no objective findings. This is some variant of the somatization disorder where people chronically and persistently complain of a variety of physical symptoms and you can find no identifiable physical origin. In this case, they blame it on the mold or perhaps the candida or any number of other toxins. Now, wet, moldy environments are not pure environments. A wet, humid, water-damaged house promotes more than mold growth. Mites, bacteria, and some chemicals are increased in a wet, moldy environment. To quote from one excellent review, this is a long quote, so now's your time to go get some coffee. Establishing such a relationship is complicated since there is a variety of pollutants in the indoor environment, including volatile organic compounds, such as toluene, benzene, alkalines, aromatic hydrocarbons, esters, alcohols, let's hear it for the alcohols, aldehydes, and ketones, combustion gases, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, carbon dioxide, ozone, and the essentially ubiquitous formaldehyde. 
Other items, copy paper and activities, photocopying, have been linked to symptoms. Other studies suggested that shade, organic debris, landscaping quality, central electrostatic systems, ventilation rates, temperature, noise level, dust control, compliance, and patient gender may be important, as well as the presence of tobacco smoke. Psychosocial issues may play a role in building-related complaints. Several studies have reported that the quality of the work environment, stress, and somatization may all be significant, end quote. In other words, it's going to be very difficult to do a pure study to show that a mold is the cause of patients' symptoms. So the studies which support the effect of toxins in humans may not be supportive after all, given the complexity of the environment that they're purporting causes disease. Let's go through some of these studies, shall we? Now, it is argued that the presence of antibody to an organism, serology in the parlance of us medicos, means a reaction to the organism and is the result of the disease. Those of us who have to deal with serological results for a living are not so sanguine. Serologies, i.e. blood tests, show an antibody response. and They are notoriously variable in their reliability and specificity for disease. So I read an article entitled Antibodies Against Mold and Mycotoxins Following Exposure to Toxigenic Fungi in a Water-Damaged Building. I'm kind of suspicious. After reading it, I see they tested 40 people who had mold exposure and compared them to 40 that did not. They checked antibodies against seven different molds and two mycotoxins by an ELISA method. They checked IgG, IgM, IgA, and IgE and found that those that had mold exposure had an increase in their antibodies. Now, antibodies to an organism does not mean that the patient had disease. Most people, for example, have antibody to staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome. We are exposed at levels that do not cause disease, and we get antibodies to the toxin. In fact, it is those that don't have antibody to toxic shock toxin who, under the right condition, get toxic shock syndrome. So antibodies only mean that you were exposed to a product, not that you had a disease. Now, unfortunately, if you judge a man by the company he keeps, I am not so certain I would trust the results of this study. Lots of ad hominem in this particular podcast. This study was done by Immunosciences Library, Inc. I perused their website, and while they offer a lot of standard labs, they apparently generate income by offering panels of labs to test for autism, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and chemical sensitivity. So I'm not so certain of the rigorousness of their diagnostic offerings. There are a number of labs out there who offer tests of questionable clinical validity. Labs can offer any test they want, whether they have proven efficacy or not. And looking over the list of their available tests, I'm not so certain I would believe the clinical validity of their testing. Now, many patients with alleged mold toxicity probably don't have mold toxicity at all, but in fact have an allergic reaction at least to judge from a study in the Annals of Allergy and Asthma Immunity. They looked at 65 patients presenting to an allergy and asthma center with a chief complaint of toxic mold exposure. I can imagine sitting in a room, so what brings you to the hospital? I have a toxic mold exposure. So that's their chief complaint, however. They thought they had the diagnosis. Symptoms were recorded and a physical exam, skin prick and puncture tests, and intercutaneous tests were performed. You can't see an allergist without a patch test. The symptoms that the patient has were rhinitis, cough, headache, respiratory symptoms, and a quarter of them had central nervous systems. Some had fatigue. The physical 
findings that they found were those consistent with allergic reactions, such as pale nasal mucosa and rhinorrhea. And 53% of the patients had skin reactions to molds. So in this study, most of the patients who thought they had a toxic reaction to molds actually were having an allergic reaction. And this is a recurrent theme in these studies, a lack of a careful evaluation of the patient to see if they have some alternative illness besides toxic mold syndrome. This is a process in medicine we call premature closure, which is not helped by thinking about baseball. What happens is that the patient or the doctor comes up with the diagnosis too soon and ceases to think further about the case. You would think that a doctor would be more investigative with a patient, but over the years I have seen many patients who have come up with a diagnosis on their own, Lyme or chronic candida, that accounted for their symptoms. Their doc took them at their word and treated them accordingly. Of course, it just may be that the doc is stupid or lazy, and unfortunately, being an MD does not make you immune to stupidity. Also, it's important to follow the money. And this makes some of these clinical trials quite interesting. Take the article, Effects of Toxic Exposure to Molds and Mycotoxins in Building-Related Illnesses. In this study, they took 100 patients who thought they had mold toxicities, again, pre-diagnosed with the disease, and ran a huge battery of tests and found all sorts of symptoms and lab findings. They had positive skin tests to molds, abnormalities in T and B cells. They had trichothecene toxin breakdown products in the urine. They had a variety of sinus and allergic symptoms. They had neurologic dysfunction. They had autonomic nervous system dysfunction. They had abnormal brain scans, PET scans, and neuropsychiatric testing. They spent a significant amount of money to work these patients up, and most of them had problems. Pretty impressive. But who did the study? The Environmental Health Center of Dallas, Texas. Who are they? This is a group in Texas that specialize in mold and chemical sensitivity and offer an impressive array of expensive tests, all designed, as best I can tell from their website, to prove you have mold no matter what. They even will let you go stay in mold-free rooms for long periods of time to be detoxified from the mold. I am, as you may know, wary of even well-designed studies published in peer-reviewed journals that have all their funding from Big Pharma. The data suggests that some pro-funding bias creeps into all clinical trials. It is usually small and probably unconscious, and in the better studies, but still there. The bias bothers me. I wrote an article on this on the Science-Based Medicine blog. The results of these studies, besides having issues with enrollment criteria, again, the sharpshooter fallacy, are suspect because the people involved with the study make their mortgage payments by diagnosing and treating mold illness. Another example of this is Dr. Gray et al. from the Progressive Healthcare Group, who published a series in the Archives of Environmental and Occupational Health. Now, many of the mold articles that are positive are published in this journal. This journal primarily publishes articles on environmental medicine and publish a lot of good articles. But also, if you have any positive studies about mold-related illness, this is the journal that you will get it published in. As best I can tell, if you want to publish on this syndrome and have little in the way of hard-nosed review, this is your journal. In some respects, it is to mold-related illnesses what the Archives of Environmental Health is to chiropractic or the Journal of Complementary and Alternative Medicine is to quacks, sort of a house organ, as it were. 
Again, though, they took 206 patients with, quote, multiple health complaints attributable to confirmed exposure to mixed mold infestation in water-damaged buildings, end quote. Nice start. They have the disease, and we are going to prove they have the disease we know they have. What a great study. Then they did a ton of studies, and lots of these studies were abnormal. Impressive. Everything from lung function to antineuronal antibodies. This is an impressive pathophysiologic process and yet another sharpshooter study. And Dr. Gray evidently is the man. Not only is he the only mold and sick illness-related physician in Arizona, according to one site, but in the USA Today, he is a lone voice against state officials in favor of molds causing illness. Dr. Gray, like some of the authors in the references listed above, appears to make his living from the diagnosis and treatment of molds. Now, I am a member in good standing of the medical industrial complex and a tool of big pharma, and as such, I am tainted. But bias and potential conflicts of interest of labs and doctors who make their mortgage payments from mold-related illness really make these studies marginally meaningful at best. It would appear from my reading that those who benefit most from the diagnosis of mold publish positive studies from mold-related toxicity, and those who do not stand to make money from the diagnosis do not seem to find such a correlation. See, I can be just as crazy as the anti-vaccine wonks. For example, another epidemiologic study was published in the Annals of Allergy and Asthma, Inhalational Mold Toxicity, Fact or Fiction, a clinical review of 50 cases. Now, this is bias time for me. Dr. Montanero and Dr. Bardana are allergists here in Stumptown, where I practice, and while I know neither of them, they have a reputation in the community of excellence. Not that anybody really understands what the hell it is that allergists do. Now, these guys could make money from mold-related illness. Insurance companies would pay to see a real doctor for this. But I'll tell you, there are few things that a doc wants to do less than take care of an imaginary illness. Now, they looked at 50 cases of purported mold toxicity. Note the purported in many epidemiologic studies, they start with the conclusion that the symptoms of the people who are exposed to mold are due to mold, and the symptoms are from the mold, and they proceed to prove their premise. Not here. They reviewed the cases and decided that 30 actually had some other medical problem to account for their symptoms. That's 60% of the patients. This is true of other series where the patient assumes to have mold. There are a lot of misdiagnosed mold patients. Two patients had evidence of allergy to mold. One patient, I love this, had mold-induced psychosis, best described as toxic agoraphobia. And 17 patients had a transient mold-induced arrow irritation. The conclusion was, quote, In this respect, the core symptoms of toxic mold syndrome and their gradual transition to chronic symptoms related to nonspecific environmental fragrance and irritants appear to mimic what has been observed with other pseudo-diagnostic categories such as sick building syndrome and idiopathic chemical intolerance, end quote. A similar study was found in a journal of toxicology and clinical toxicology entitled Toxicological and Neuropsychological Findings in Patients Presenting to Environmental Toxicology Service. Again, Rather than starting with the assumption and presumption, or presumption or insumption, that the patients had mold toxicity, they ask, well, what do these patients have? And they looked at 120 patients referred for mold toxicity and found, well, what do you think? And they looked carefully at their patients. 
they found a wide variety of other causes. 19 patients actually had toxicities from other products, lead and mercury. 10 patients had psychosomatic disorders. Six had other medical problems. And 83 patients were thought to have classical psychosomatic disorders. The key thing is that when looked at carefully, most of these patients had an alternative diagnosis to explain their symptoms. Most of these patients suffer from incompetent, stupid, or lazy physicians who can't figure out what they really have. Probably exacerbated by patients who have a fixed idea as to the nature of their illness. I've seen these patients in my clinic who are convinced, despite all rational conversation, that they have a disease they don't have. My favorite and most disgusting was a patient who had delusions of parasitism, and he brought in a large jar of all the parasites that he'd been collecting. He dumped them on the table in front of me, and I asked them where they came from. He said he pulled them out of his nose every day. He brought in a big jar of dried buggers. He also ate a raw garlic every minute to keep these parasites away, and I could not eat garlic for a year after seeing this patient. You may think this is an extreme example of patients with a fixed idea of their illness, but I assure you, it is not. The funniest article I read was one where they think that those who are diagnosed with electrosensitivity syndrome actually, since they have the same symptoms as mold toxicity, may in fact have mold toxicity instead of sensitivity to electricity. I thought that was sweet. Symptoms from one imaginary disease is actually due to another imaginary disease. A strong hint that mold toxicity is probably nothing. Now, there are one big issue with these epidemiologic studies, which needs to be addressed. And what's the baseline of not feeling well? People, in general, evidently feel non-specifically ill. Life, it appears, is hazardous to your health. In Sweden, they looked at a variety of alleged mold symptoms and sick building symptoms in 2,000 Swedes and found that, in fact, most Swedes don't feel well most of the time, whether or not they worked in a sick building. Everybody, it appears, has aches and pains and headaches and fatigue, even the Swedes, which is an interesting question to which I do not know the answer. What is the human baseline? It appears that the assumption is that everyone at baseline is supposed to be healthy and feel well. My observational bias makes me think that the baseline is to feel crappy and to be sick, but I don't really know what the baseline of human beings is supposed to be. I wouldn't be surprised that the general aches and pains of life lead some people to think that they have mold disease when in fact they just have a crappy life. So what's the take home? Well, to summarize from one good review, quote, molds growing indoors are believed to cause building-related symptoms. Despite a voluminous literature on the subject, and believe me, it's voluminous, the causal relationship remains weak and unproven, particularly with respect to causation by mycotoxins. One mold in particular, Stachyboetris chartarum, is blamed for a diverse array of maladies when it is found indoors. Despite its well-known ability to produce mycotoxins under appropriate growth condition, years of invasive study have failed to establish exposure to S. chartum 
in home, school, or office environments as a cause of adverse human health effects. Levels of exposure in the indoor environment, dose response state in animals, and dose rate consideration suggest that the delivery by the inhalation route of a toxic dose of mycotoxin in the indoor environment is highly unlikely at best, even for the hypothetically most vulnerable subpopulations. So are there toxin-mediated diseases by molds? I don't think so. There's maybe some biologic plausibility, but that they can cause disease that no good case has been made in its favor, and all the supporting information has huge bias or other methodologic flaws. From another review, this illness is characterized by an absence of objective evidence of disease and by the lack of defined pathology, somewhat like all of alternative medicine. There is usually no specificity for the involved fungus purported to cause the illness. There is no coherent clinical description for the presumed illness, end quote. Now, the fact that there is not a disease caused by mold has not prevented a large industry from springing up. There are many companies that will measure your mold burden, clean up your mold burden, and, most importantly, help you sue someone to help you remediate your mold burden. Google mold and you will find no end of entries. When they tear down schools and other buildings for this imaginary illness, your tax dollars in action. Now again, I'm talking about toxic molds, not allergies to these molds, which is a true illness. And there are, of course, a legal industry and toxic mold lawyers. There is money to be made and people to be sued. But I would not recommend taking the route of the Eugene, Oregon family. And how come all these crazy people seem to be in Oregon? They burned down their house because the mold was causing their flu-like symptoms and their bloody noses. In my household, most bloody noses are due to fingernails that are too long, if you know what I mean. Now, this topic turned out to be much larger than I anticipated, so there's far more distillation of the papers than in prior podcasts. Some of the numerous references are on the website, but a bibliography of the papers read for this podcast would take far too long for me to type or even cut and paste, so if you're really interested, do a PubMed search. Also, I modified the title for this podcast from Fungus Shui, an online article. Now for listener feedback. I get a lot of nice letters from some very kind people, but I cannot believe the insightful analysis and critical thinking from the pro-alternative medicine listeners. To wit, message one. Everything that you stand for and everything that you represent is soon to vanish. Those medical companies that you are so proud of being a part of are beginning to monopolize the drug industry. They are inserting additives into multivitamins and minerals. They are poisoning our general public with fluoridated water. You are a perverse, materialistic, pathetic being. If you are married, your wife probably dislikes you to an extent beyond my capabilities. And if you have children, they respect you as a father and as a cash money. You cannot feel love in your cold, distraught heart. I feel no sympathy. And laugh out loud at you. What kind of educated person are you? Alternative meaning stupid? Obviously, you have never experienced any form of holistic therapy. I can list, although he doesn't, hundreds of age-old practices that predate pharmaceuticals and modern medicine. How could the herbs and rituals, so to speak, work for hundreds of thousands of people then, but not now. 
I will agree that some practices are relatively ignorant and barbaric, such as bleeding people. But the best chiropractics? It is full doctor's degree that requires years and years of training in school. It isn't tarot reading, you arseface. You must be Australian. Your podcast is arrogant and childish. Way to be a total idiot. Both sent anonymously, so they had the courage of their convictions. Damn, 45 minutes. This is a long podcast, but thank you. This is brought to you as a side project of Pusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly Puscast review of infectious diseases where you can get type 1 CME. Copyright 2008, the Creative Commons. References are on the show notes and can be linked from quackcast.com. Send your hate mail and spam and questions about quackery to knowitall at quackcast.com. I will eventually answer my email. Feedback is always of interest. I wouldn't mind being accused of being a tool of the medical industrial complex if you see fit. Now I'm off to eat some Roquefort. Mmm, mold. <laughs>